So this morning we'll read from John chapter 7 and verses 37 through 39. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You know, when I was in about sixth grade or so, I remember one particular birthday. My parents had told me I could bring a friend and that they would drop us at the roller skating rink for a while so we could go roller skating and then go pick up a present and go out to a dinner for pizza. I was excited for the day as any young person is for their birthday. And the friend of mine that was going to go lived just outside of town on a farm out there. And we got in the car and took off and went to pick him up. And we got there and went up and knocked on the door and his mom answered the door and we asked where Scott was and she said, well, he's out there, isn't he? And we looked around the, the buildings and stuff and we couldn't find him anywhere. And She said he was just here a minute ago. He was standing out there waiting for you guys. I don't know what, I don't know what happened to him. And so we looked around some more and stood around and waited for a while and finally we took off and my birthday I felt like was kind of ruined a little bit. Except you still got a present, go out pizza, that was good. But I didn't bother going roller skating because who wants to go do that by yourself? I think it was on Monday or whatever when we went back to school. I said, hey, where were you? And he said, well, I was standing out there waiting to go uh, roller skating and stuff with you. And then uh, one of our other friends came riding up on a motorcycle and that looked like more fun. So I jumped on my motorcycle and we took off and went riding for the day. And I was like, you're kidding me. I felt pretty betrayed with that, to be honest. I'm still kind of scarred from it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Utter rejection. Well, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at in the Gospel of John. You know what we're seeing in chapter 7 is a fleshing out of chapter 1. So when you look back at chapter 1, in verses 10 through 13, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He told us back in John chapter 1 exactly what was going to happen as we read the rest of the Gospel. He came to His people, and they did not welcome Him. There were some who received Him, those who believed in His name, and they received eternal life. But by and large, as a majority, the whole did not receive Him, did not welcome Him. They were invited to Him, but they refused the invitation. And and as we look in chapter 7 here, we're seeing the fleshing out of what He summarized back in chapter 1. Some are saying, well, it's got to be the guy, right? And others are saying, no way, he's a deceiver. And there's, and eventually, in about another six months, it's going to culminate in the cross and they're going to hang him on it and put him to death. And so they will outright reject him. But what we see in these few verses is we see once again an invitation. You're invited. And he does it to anyone. Anyone who's thirsty. He doesn't do this privately. He stands up in a very public event and he just belts it out. He came here to lay down His life for us to invite us to His salvation. And just like back then, the majority of people that are invited to the cross or invited to this salvation have rejected Him. But those who believe have been given the right to become children of God. It may be that uh, you're sitting here this morning and it's your day of invitation. Well, as we look at it, we're going to look at five different things as we look down through these verses that stand out to us. The first thing that we really need to cover is the situation. He describes it here in this passage as the last day of the feast. And then, he, and then he says the great day. 
The feast that he's talking about, if you look back at verse 2 of the same chapter, is it's the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, Succoth, it's also called. It takes place in the fall of the year, and the harvest has all been taken care of, and it's not quite the rainy season yet, but they want that rainy season to come. And if you look back in Leviticus, when God first gave them this feast to participate in, you see that He wanted really kind of two things out of this feast. One of them was a thanksgiving. But the second thing that he wanted to do is he wanted them to express that thanksgiving in connection with their past. What God wanted them to do was commemorate the time when they, that they spent in the wilderness. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, He brought them out into the wilderness. They spent 40 years out in the wilderness with God. How did they survive? Miraculously. You know, God made it so that their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out. In fact, it says that their feet didn't even swell. He fed them with manna. Just this heavenly bread-like substance that just showed up on the ground. Water, the one that stands out the most is the water from the rock. God told Moses, go up and hit the rock with your staff and it'll pour out water and they drank from the rock. Very miraculous. Well, what they're supposed to do during the Feast of Tabernacles is they're supposed to look back on that time of their history and think about how God had provided for them and taken care of them during those 40 years in the desert. If He can take care of Israel for 40 years in the desert... He's telling those Israelites, He can sure take care of you in your watered farmland now. The feast takes seven days. I think I misspoke last week. I think I said it took like maybe ten. But I uh, was thinking of something else and got it wrong. So I apologize for that. And what the feast consisted of was for seven days you came to Jerusalem. It was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that happened during the year. Now the other thing was, they're supposed to all camp out. That's why they call it booths or tabernacles. That just means a tent. So they're supposed to take these boughs from palm branches and myrtle trees and things like that and make these little shelters. And that's where you're going to sleep for the week is out in the, out in the backyard in the tent. Or if you're traveling to get there, maybe you're going to sleep in somebody else's yard in a tent. They were also going to offer sacrifices. They would start the first day of the week offering 13 sacrifices. All the way down to the last day of the week, they would take one sacrifice off each day. So the last day, on the seventh day, they would offer seven sacrifices, which would give them a total of 70 sacrifices for the week. Kind of puts a little insight on Peter's question about how often should you forgive somebody, doesn't it? But at any rate, old rabbis used to say that the reason for the 70 sacrifices over the week actually looked beyond Israel. They considered there to be 70 nations, and it was a sacrifice for each of the nations looking forward to the time when God would save through Israel, but save all the world. And so tabernacles is an amazing moment. But you know what it is? It's one more of Jesus' moments. It's about Him. You look back in Israel's history, when God's providing for Him in the wilderness, all the twelve tribes of Israel are all living in tents, and they divide up by tribe. So each of the tribes, three of them here, three of them here, three of them here, three of them here, all the way around. And then right in the very middle, there's one more tent. And whose is it? It's God's. And it's called the tabernacle. Right in the middle of all Israel, God says, I am camping out with you. And to demonstrate His presence, a pillar of fire over the tabernacle in the night and a pillar of cloud by the day to show God's presence. And for 40 years, they're camping in the wilderness with God. God is dwelling with His people. Now think about that. We started out dwelling with God in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. But that was destroyed by our sin and we have been outside the garden ever since. But then God comes to redeem His people Israel and God says, I'm going to dwell with you. When they get to the promised land, they're still using the tabernacle for quite a while. In fact, all the way up into the days of David. And David says, you know what? This isn't right. I'm living in palaces. God's still living in a tent. 
And so David says, I want to make it permanent. God, we want to build you something. God says, nope, not you, but your son's going to. David can't hardly keep his hands off it, so he kind of gets everything ready for his son. And then Solomon gets to build the temple. And when he dedicates the temple, he says, God, we know that this building can't really conceal you. How can the God of all the heavens and the earth be confined, be contained within this one building, but let it represent your presence among us? And so God was now permanently dwelling with his people. What is this about? This is about God dwelling with man. John chapter 1, the verses we read this morning, verses 10 through 13, talking about the world rejecting Christ. The very next verse, verse 14, says, And the Word, and the Word is talking about Christ, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what? That's actually the same word translated tabernacle. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He came and pitched His tent among us. He came and lived with us. Where is the presence of God? When you think of tabernacles, tabernacles is remembering that time where we were camped out in the wilderness with God. How is God dwelling with them right now? God is dwelling with them in the person of His Son. Jesus is tabernacles at that point. He is the Feast of Booths at that point. He is the way that God is dwelling with mankind at that point. It is in the person of His Son Jesus as He come to make His home, to make His dwelling among us. Now, as we stop and think of the other elements of the feast, the one we're looking at this week has to do with the water. Israel at this point, whenever they celebrated tabernacles, they thank God for the success that they've had, the prosperity that they've had in the last year because God provided them rain to help the crops grow. But then they also shift their focus to start praying that God would provide more rain, more water to grow the crops for next year because the rainy season's coming and they desperately need it. And so there's a lot of focus on water. Also looking back, there's a big focus on water. Why? Because of the rock. And so they're thinking about that water as well. In fact, they had a ceremony about that. Every day for seven days, the priest would go out to the Gihon Springs and he would take this pitcher and he would fill this pitcher up with water from the springs and then they would turn and they would march back to the temple and pour it on the altar. While they were progressing along the way, they sang. They sang a verse of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, it says, "...with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation." And so they were looking back on how God had saved them in the wilderness through providing water miraculously. But not only that, they're also looking forward to the time where God will continue to bless them with water. Uh, Zechariah talks about that in chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. This is talking about when Christ comes back and sets up His kingdom on earth. It says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern city and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. When you get to Ezekiel 37, he describes it, the same event. And he says there's water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. He says, I walked a thousand cubits, which would be about like 1,500 feet. So what, five football field lengths? He says, I went about 1,500 feet away and I walked across it and it was ankle deep. And then I went another 1,500 feet away and I walked across it and it was knee deep. And then I went another 1,500 and I walked across and it was waist deep. And then I went another 1,500 and it was a raging river that nobody could cross. 
that water being a sign of God's prosperity when Jesus is king, they'll have all the water that they need for everything to flourish and grow and be blessed by God. And so they're looking back on how God provided for them in the wilderness. They're looking forward to when the Messiah comes and sets up His kingdom and the priest is marching in with the pitcher and they dump it on the altar and Jesus stands up and He says, if anybody's thirsty, you come to Me. And out of your heart will flow rivers. Not just out of the temple, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. This whole feast is about Him. The promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-5, through 5, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So it's looking back at their history and saying, look, as they followed along underneath the cloud and they went through the, the sea when God parted it, that's kind of a symbol of our baptism. And he says they all ate the same spiritual food, that would be the manna, and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness because of their unbelief. That rock was pointing to something. What was that rock? The Apostle Paul looks at it and says that rock was Christ. And you know what? When you realize that, that makes a lot of sense with the happenings that, that happened back there. When the children of Israel were grumbling before God, we're going to die of thirst. We don't, we need some water. And God tells Moses, take your staff and go up and hit the rock. And he hits the rock and the rock pours out water. It pours out life. Right? Because without that, they die in the desert. And so it pours out the water of life and they drink of it later on. Even though they've seen water come from a rock for crying out loud, they end up grumbling and complaining again. And God goes to Moses and He tells Moses, go back to the rock, and but this time don't hit the rock. Just go up and speak to the rock. And Moses goes up and he's approaching that rock and the Israelites are in front of him and he's getting mad and madder and madder at them as he approaches the rock because of their grumbling and their complaining. Because they're not just complaining about God, they're also complaining about Him. And as he gets up to that rock, he takes his staff and he just wails on that rock again in his anger. Now God, in His mercy, out comes the water. He lets the water pour out of the rock. But Moses is told, now you're not going into the promised land. You're going to get to see it from a distance, but you're not going in. I remember years ago as a new Christian reading that or hearing that and saying, wow, kind of harsh. I mean, this is the guy that's been leading these rebellious, stiff-necked people around the wilderness for you. This is the guy that went and stood before Pharaoh for you. Now all of a sudden, he doesn't get to go into the promised land before going home to glory? Well, heaven's better than the promised land anyway, but still, he ruined a picture. What was the picture? The rock was a picture of Christ. And Christ, how many times has He suffered for your sins? Once. Christ has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. To beat that rock again shows a repetition of the suffering, which means that the suffering was not sufficient. And the suffering was totally sufficient. And so Moses, in beating the rock, ruins the picture of Christ. Because after your sins have been atoned for, Christ once suffered for our sins. Well, what if I sin again after coming to faith in Christ? Well, you just go back and you confess that. Just like Moses was just going to go ask the rock for the water. The provision of that water, that living water in the wilderness, that was a picture of what Christ would bring. Christ brings us the living water. He's the one that quenches our thirst. You know, in Zechariah chapter 14, with the earlier verses we're talking about when Christ sets up His kingdom, the water that's going to be flowing out from the temple in both directions. Now this one is 
then in that kingdom, as he rules that kingdom, what happens? It says, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. So in the kingdom time, when Christ is on the throne, we're going to continue to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths year after year. It says, if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And what is that punishment? He said repeatedly, no rain. And so you see, this whole celebration was looking back at the past and God's provision of the water of life for them in the, in the desert. It looks forward to the time of the Messiah when He would set up His kingdom. You know, Revelation talks about the same thing. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, and this is even after the kingdom now, this is in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and, from, and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so, you know, when we look at this time, this moment, this invitation, these people had been doing this for 1,300 years. And now Christ gets there and He gives them the invitation. If you're thirsty, invitation largely rejected. Well, that's the situation that the invitation is offered in. The condition, if anyone thirsts, are you thirsty? Do you have a, you have a hunger, a thirst for Christ? Salvation is not just to say this little simple prayer and then you got that in that things taken care of, you can go on back about your life. That's not salvation. Salvation is a, it's a thirst for Christ. It's a thirst that can only be quenched in Him. Remember in, back in chapter 6, it talked about how nobody can come to Christ unless he's drawn by the Father. That's what that thirst is. God drawing you. And a lot of times we don't even recognize what it is at first, but it brings us to that point of realizing that the only satisfaction for this thirst, the only quenching of this thirst is in Christ. That's where Israel had a problem. The prophet Jeremiah would tell him in chapter 2 and verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It says they've forsaken the fountain to try to substitute that with a cistern, and the cistern that they have doesn't even hold water. Later in chapter 17, verse 13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. I think we do, we're still doing the same thing today. You see, there's a thirst. There's a, the Bible says in, in Ecclesiastes that, that there's, that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. A lot of people describe it as a God-sized hole within us that only God can fill. And so we, we recognize that something's missing. We have a void. We have a thirst, a hunger, but we don't know what to fill it with. But when you look out around our world, is the world largely filling that void with God today? No. You know what the world is filling that void with today? They try to fill it with all kinds of different things. They try to fill it with accomplishments. They try to fill it with money. They try to fill it with possessions. They try to fill it with, with relationships. They try to fill it with passions. Even with hobbies, family, 
Not everything that they try to fill it with is necessarily evil of its own. Some of the things are a gift of God to be taken and enjoyed, but they're not meant to fill the space that is for God. Only God can fill that. Only Christ can quench that thirst. Even Solomon, he tried the same thing. He said, I tried accomplishments. I tried great learning. I tried wealth. And he became like the greatest in all those different areas. And he said, in the end, you know what? The only one thing was satisfied. Serve God in the days of your youth. That's the answer. Everything else is vanity. He kept calling it emptiness. It was a chasing after the wind until he finally learned this is what you got to fill it with. You know who got it? The woman at the well. Remember her when we were in John chapter 4? She became thirsty and when you saw her life turned upside down. You're invited. What's the situation? All these things, this whole festival that pointed to Christ. What is the condition? Thirst. There isn't some amazing thing you've got to do or accomplish or be to accept this invitation. you just got to be thirsty. And that's it. Not only the condition, but then let's look at the invitation. What is the invitation? It's just very simply, and he said this several times back in chapter 6. He says, come to me. Come to me. That's it. And then he describes what does that mean exactly? Come to me. Drink. What does that mean? Well, he lists it right after that. Believe. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. They just need to come to him. That's what the invitation is. It's to Christ. It's to put your faith in Him. It's to have a relationship with Him. In Revelation chapter 7, I believe what you're seeing there is the rapture of the church. Some may disagree with that, but at any rate, there's definitely this group that's that's there that's in heaven. They're in white robes and stuff. And it says that one of the elders that was up in heaven came to John and he asked John, he says, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorched heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What is the invitation to Christ? When Christ says, come to Me, you know what that invitation is? It's an invitation to be there. When you look at the book of Revelation, And it's at that point right there, chapter 7, where God is about to pour out His trumpet judgments upon the world, upon an unbelieving world. And before He does that, He rescues His people out from the midst of the tribulation. The invitation of Christ to come to Him is an invitation to be there at that moment. Not left down on the earth going through the horrors of the wrath of God, but to be delivered from all that and to be in the very presence of Christ at that moment. He also talks about later in the book of Revelation what the living water accomplishes for us. In chapter 21, verse 6, it says, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's an invitation to be there as well. If you're at the first one in Revelation 7, you will be at this one in Revelation 21. You will see all this unfold. And in Revelation 22, and both of these dealing with the New Jerusalem In the new heavens and the new earth, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without a price. 
And so you see continually, both back in Christ's day and in the future in the book of Revelation, He continues to give this invitation, come and take of the water of life freely. What does it mean? It means to come to Him. To put your faith in Him. You know what? I'm so thankful that at one point I was thirsty and recognized what my thirst was for. It was for Christ. And the moment that I partook in Christ by believing in Him, I was satisfied. But I'm thankful that when the events of Revelation 7 come to pass, I will be satisfied there. And when the new heavens and the new earth come to pass, I will be satisfied there. Why? Because of the invitation that was given by Christ. Well, then we also see not only the invitation, but we see a transformation. Notice what it says. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, obviously, symbolic language, just like we talked about back in chapter 6. Christ is using a lot of symbolic language here, just like when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It was symbolic. Well, he does the same thing here. Now he turns it to, it's not just symbolism about him, but symbolism about us. When we do that, when we put our faith in Christ, a transformation takes place. It says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When you put your faith in Christ, that living water that comes into you from Christ, you become like a conduit for it. And he says, out of you will flow rivers of this. You know, the Bible teaches us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And this is teaching us that at the moment we put our faith in Christ, we have life bursting forth out of us. Well, let me ask you this. Can you experience that and not change? I don't think so. When the living water comes into you, it will flow out of you like rivers. You will be transformed. You will be changed because of this. Same thing that Jesus told the woman at the well. He told her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Talking about the well that she was dipping from, which is Jacob's well. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Does that describe your salvation experience? Absolutely it does. Why? Because the moment you put your faith in Christ, if you genuinely did, you were transformed. You're changed. You can't be the same. The Bible teaches that the moment we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. Can you be exactly the same without the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit? Isn't He going to make some difference in your life? Absolutely He is. The Bible talks about the gifts that the Spirit gives us. The Bible talks about the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in our life. The changes that He makes in us. That's the transformation. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The way Jesus puts it is that water, that living water is going to come to you when you believe in me and out of you will it will flow. Well, then he gives an ex- explanation as for our last part of the passage that we look at. And the explanation is the Spirit. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believe in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You know, it's the same thing that He told Nicodemus back when He met Him in John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, we know you've got to come from God. Nobody can do the things you're doing unless God's with Him. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, again. Or it can be translated from above. But Nicodemus got hung up on again. He says, again. Can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, Nope, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. He says you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Not water or the Spirit. They're the same. You can, it can be translated water, even the Spirit. We talked about at that time we looked at Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36 and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. The Old Testament repeatedly uses water as a symbolism of the spirit. That's what Jesus is doing here. It tells us just plainly. It says He was speaking of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that would be given. Because it wasn't until Christ was glorified. It doesn't mean that the Spirit was non-existent or totally inactive. But we did not have the Spirit like we did from the day of Pentecost on. You read Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes in power on the apostles. And then from then on, we get to tap into that Spirit. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour My Spirit upon your offspring and My blessing on your descendants. And so throughout the Old Testament, it uses water as an illustration or an alluding to the Spirit. That's what we experience. That's what Christ describes. He gives us the invitation. And the invitation is still for all of us here today, just like it was for them back then. It's all about Jesus. That whole festival and everything. Everything pointing to Christ. And Jesus says, Is anyone thirsty? You come to Me and drink. He offers that invitation. It's an invitation that will change your life if you believe in Him.